0: This is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby podcast. Hello, welcome back. I'm really excited to have a guest today. His name is Dr. Barry Schwartz. He's a psychologist. He's done tons of talks, written books about the topic of choice. You might have heard of The Paradox of Choice. That's his like most famous book. He kind of popularized the phrase and really the idea that sometimes having too many choices is not as advantageous as we might think, that in fact, it can incite anxiety and dissatisfaction. And um, ultimately, that's the paradox. More choices at a certain point is good. Too many is bad. I'm really interested in kind of applying his ideas to our sense of identity and kind of like our sense of what's possible in our lives. You know, when you're trying to decide where to go to dinner and you can't figure out what to do and somebody, and you ask your friend and they say, I don't care at all. And it seems like that would be a nice response because it's very easy. It leaves every option open, but actually it's like really not helpful. And what would really be helpful is for them to help winnow the options. I think that we're facing that on kind of like a broader level with this sort of anything is possible ethos that we grow up with. It seems sort of on the face of it that it's very, it's a very positive message. But ultimately, I think we find it to be very anxiety inducing. And, you know, it's I do think that and Barry posits this, it's a huge contributor to like mass levels of like anxiety and depression across younger generations. And um, part of that is also the fact that Actually, not everything's possible, but we're told it is. And that sort of um, dissonance is really uncomfortable and it's not very often acknowledged. So, anyway, I was really excited to have Barry, he likes to go by Barry, on the podcast. We talk about so many things in this conversation, from comparison culture on social media, class differences when it comes to choice, individualism, kind of choice as it is interpreted on the, across the political spectrum. We even talk about choice feminism. I felt like I had to. We talk about dating and marriage, which I thought was really interesting. We also talk about luck and justice and politics and how all these weave in with his work. What's crazy is we didn't even get to like half the things I had on my list that I wanted to talk to him about, so... You know, maybe one day we'll we'll talk again. But I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think he's that great combination of being an expert and also still being really curious about his topic. So if you are interested in anything he has to say, he has so many talks online. When I was researching before I talked to him, I was in awe (laughs) of how many talks and interviews he's done on this topic. So there's a wealth of content waiting for you if you desire it. Let me make sure I'm hearing like a slight echo with my voice. Are you hearing that?
1: No i was at the beginning hearing it with my voice but now i'm not
0: you're not okay good so you're you have your audio coming in through your headphones you even have a mic which is great yes (laughs) you're ready clearly you've been on some podcasts
1: i i've done this once or twice before yeah
0: (laughs) i was like doing research on you and it's amazing how many talks you've given are you sick of talking about this yet
1: (laughs) i'm not you know because it's a little bit like teaching a class that you've taught a lot of times before When you first start, it's like hard to get yourself going. Uh But after a while, you know, signs of interest from the audience and your own sort of intellectual ebb and flow, sort of the juices start to flow. And I stop uh, remembering that I've talked about this a hundred times before. So that makes sense. I, I don't have trouble, and you know, the the truth is, as as we discussed for your article. What I wrote about was barely scratching the surface of what the world is like now. So Mm -hmm.
0: I know there's like endlessly new, um, applications to make with this. I was thinking about that as I was thinking about what we wanted to talk about. And I was like, this could go in a million directions.
1: Well, I'm in your hands.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Um, Okay, well, so I'll spare you from like explaining what the paradox of choice is because I will explain it before we come on, and I also think that your reputation precedes you. People know yeah. by now. Um, I mean, you really popularized this idea, so I think most people listening will already know about it. But I'm curious, just like maybe by way of introduction, like how you feel like the the choice landscape has changed since you gave your talk in 2005. I mean, I know you've given so many since then, but I was listening. I rewatched that talk this morning. And I was just thinking about how much our relationship with choice has changed since then, not just because we have even more choices, right? Like even more access, but also because in some ways we have, the culture has responded to this idea that it's overwhelming. And like, we do have some, like, you know, there were like the big minimalist movement, which I think was a response in some ways to too much choice. You mentioned in your pod, uh, in your talk that like, there never would be a phone that did less. And like, there are they're not popular, but there are phones now that do less. Yep. And, um, I don't know if you like saw all the, the kind of talk of like how every brand started looking the same. Like every logo was sans serif on like a simple white background. There was definitely like a draw towards like simplifying as some sort of response, whether it was effective, I would debate, <laughs> but I'm just curious, like how you feel like we have these two forces now of like sort of contending with the choices, but also still kind of investing in more. And I'm curious how you feel like it's changed since you gave that talk.
1: Sure. So, you know, in in 2005, and of course, I'd been thinking about and writing about it a few years before then, the internet was just getting started as the principal source of our commercial interaction with the world. And it hadn't started as a principal source of our social interaction with the world. Right. And so there's a sense in which the, the world of 2021 is really a different world, at least among the privileged, at least among the affluent. Um, and my take is, it's essentially as if I never wrote the book, never gave the TED talk. Oh, no. uh, you know, millions of people have watched it, but as near as I can tell, it's hard to imagine that the way the world has developed reflects in any way the lessons that I was trying to communicate in that talk. It, you know, oh. is it, is it true that Netflix only has 60,000 films and it could have 80,000? Well, maybe, you know, but is, does that right. count as progress? Is that an improvement? I don't think so. You know, right. and, and he, the way I think about it, both from the perspective of the Seller and the buyer is this. Somebody walks into your convenience store and asks for Royal Crown Cola. Well, you don't carry Royal Crown Cola, partly because you have limited shelf space and partly because you saw this talk about the paradox of choice and you (laughs) decided you're going to limit the options. You're not going to torture your customers. And so that person walks out with nothing. It is extremely salient. That if you had one more option, you'd have made a sale. What is much less salient is that people walk out of the store with $5 worth of merchandise instead of 15 because you've made it so hard for them to make decisions. And so every time somebody wants X and you don't have it, it's a slap in the face. But it's much less of a slap in the face when people buy some but not as much as they would if the experience were less less challenging for them. Mm -hmm. And so that there's a kind of asymmetry there that keeps on pushing people to add more options so that no one will ever walk into the store and not be able to find what they're looking for. And I think the same sort of thing is true from the consumer side. You know, yeah, uh, I'll limit the number of options that I look at, but somewhere out there is the perfect version of what I'm looking for. Why should I stop now? Why not look at one more site I'll I'll never forget this. Um, Some years ago, we needed a new toaster. And so my my wife said, I'm going to go buy one. Um, I'll be down in 10 minutes. You know, she was going to do it online. Uh Well, (laughs) 10 minutes go by. Yeah, of course not. 20 minutes (laughs) go by. And, and, you know, we're not all that fussy. She spent an hour and a half and came (laughs) down empty-handed. You know, because because I mean, one of the things I think that happens is that when you see that these things come in all these varieties with all these features that you don't care about, you start to think, well, maybe I should care about them. If they're going to the trouble to make them, maybe I should go to the trouble to evaluate them. And and then you go down the rabbit hole and you end up um, eating untoasted bread (laughs) So so it's really difficult to just commit yourself to taking the lessons that I tried to offer in the book seriously and deliberately limiting your options because the world is not going to help you. Right. It's only going to happen if you do it as an act of resolve, because the world is simply not going to cooperate. So it's disappointing to me, because, not only because people get much less satisfaction out of the decisions they make, but also because it's incredibly wasteful of resources, material resources and human resources. It costs money to produce all this variety, and if, if people aren't even benefiting from it, think about other things you could could be done with that money. Right. and that's one of the points I make in the in the TED talk. If it were just Making people miserable, well, you know, that's too bad, but so what? But it's it's making people miserable and simultaneously depriving other people of resources that would be available if we weren't so addicted to, uh, to variety, to options. So I would say if I had the energy to sit down and write the book now, there would be nothing in it different. It's just that everything, you'd have to add a zero to everything to every argument that I, that I make. And I focus a lot more on the social side of it because I think there's a chapter in the book about social comparison and how much of a problem that is um, because you're, always, you're asking not how good is this compared to how good I hoped it would be, but how good is this compared to what he has and she has and they have. Um, and it's so much easier to make these social comparisons than it used to be thanks to social media. And, you know, it looks to me, I'm basically a non-participant in social media, but it looks to me. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) You know, I attribute it to my old age, but I I, I wish I could say that I saw this coming. I didn't. (laughs) I mostly thought it was frivolous, uh, you know, not worth the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It turned out it's not frivolous. It's actually destructive. I didn't see that. Um, Yeah. I don't think anyone did when it first started, but You know, everyone on Facebook, except you, seems to be living a perfect life. Right. So you look at that and you go, what am I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. I thought I had a lovely vacation. But when I look at other people's pictures of their vacations, I realize that mine kind of sucked. I'm going to have to put more time and effort into figuring out where to go on next year's vacation. Um, And of course, you don't appreciate that you're doing the same distorting when you present your self to the world as other people are doing. You sort of think, well, they're showing me their lives as they actually are. And I'm showing them my life prettified. Um, so they must be living better lives than I I am, which means they must be making better decisions than I am. I got to fix this. So this aspect of choice, which was a problem 20 years ago is now a mega problem. And I think it's Mm -hmm. torture for young people, uh, adolescents,
0: yeah, I mean, one of the more like befuddling aspects of that, though, is that I think it's become almost common knowledge now that you're like quote unquote seeing people's highlight reels. Like, yep. it's almost like awareness doesn't actually do as much to change the conditions of it as we would like to think. At least as I would like to think, as like a writer, <laughs> you know, I feel like I have so much investment in like ideas. It's almost like what you were saying. Like, you're like some people have seen my TED talk, but like it doesn't really feel like things change and i think that like p- part of that is just like our commitment to individualism as like an ideology and yep. this idea that like you are responsible for like your own happiness and every choice you make like will will pay into that or the opposite and i feel like you know obviously like the internet's changed our relationship with like what happiness looks like mm-hmm. obviously it's like now it's supposed to be something that can be very it's very visible and tangible and like consumable so it's like so many different forces.
1: I think that that those you made, you made two really insightful comments there that that I'll I'll expand upon a little bit. The first is that um, this indiv- the, the 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 incredibly destructive uh, consequences of individualism. This turns out to be a peculiarly Western and especially American thing, and it's tied it's tied in the U.S. to class. in an interesting way. So uh, uh, there's a psychologist at Stanford named Hazel Marcus who with students has done a bunch of research on this. If you compare um, a postdoc at Stanford who makes pretty modest salary with uh, an electrician who makes much more money, but the postdoc is college educated and the electrician isn't, it turns out that the postdoc is this rabid individualist and the electrician isn't. And it's manifest in the following many ways, but one very salient one is when you tell the postdoc that their next door neighbor got the same car they have, it pisses them off. Mm-hmm. Because every decision you make is designed to highlight your individuality. If you tell it to the electrician, it it boosts, it boosts the electrician. You know, you're getting external validation for your decision. Mm-hmm. It's fine to be part of the group. You don't aspire to uniqueness. So you're absolutely right about that. It's insidious what individualism does. Uh, And I think that this is an affliction more of young people than of older people. I think you sort of age out in the same way that people age out of violent crime. I think people age out of rabid individualism to some Mm -hmm. degree. The second point, which I'm already forgetting.
0: uh, Oh, that like we've become more reliant on the idea of happiness. That's
1: like in very happiness. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So here's an interesting factoid about happiness. Paper was published about five or seven years ago. If you look at dictionary definitions of happiness, historically within a language and culture and also across cultures at a given moment, it turns out that in many, at many times and in many places, Either the second definition or sometimes the first definition of happiness is good fortune. Mm-hmm. You've heard the expression, this was a happy accident. Yeah. You know, well, that's sort of what the word meant. To be happy is to be lucky, yeah. which means that happiness is something that happens to you, it's not something that you earn. Or something you're expected to aspire to which puts this incredible burden on people we are in charge of our lives we are in charge of our happiness if we are unhappy we've blown it that's a modern understanding of happiness now uh, this is not an argument that we should see ourselves as passive victims in the world to which things happen it is an argument that we should to some degree acknowledge that a lot of what we are is a function of things that happen to us and not things that we make happen. And no one is in a position to make all the things happen. You know, years ago, Obama got into a lot of trouble in a speech he gave, sort of criticizing the anti-tax conservative part of the spectrum. He said, you didn't build that whatever the, the store, the house, the business. And what he meant was not that people had no responsibility for making their way in the world, but that there was the, what they did was incredibly dependent on the work of other people who built the infrastructure, you know, the uh, electric grid, the internet, uh, the railroads. You didn't build those things. And without right. those things, you wouldn't have been able to succeed in your business. So what he meant to say was, you are not solely responsible for your success. Wake up, pay attention, and start making sure that the things you relied on are going to be available for other people. But it came out as none of us earn the the good things that happen to us, which is not what he meant. So I think we really are tortured by this notion that happiness is something we – we create or we earn rather than something that happens to us if, we're, if yeah. we're fortunate.
0: It's very pervasive. I mean, I don't even think it's just the like right side of the political spectrum. I think all of American politics are very invested in this idea. I'm, I'm actually curious, like on the political side, a lot of your ideas have like political implications. Like you talk a lot about like what makes how we organize society in a way that's like compassionate and just. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, what do you think modern policy gets the most wrong about like humanity and like what makes people fulfilled
1: sure in their life. I'll be happy to tell you that. Uh, It is interesting though, in the, in, in the, uh, uh, some of the consequences of the pandemic with people losing their jobs, it drove me crazy that Biden has always felt the need to say people who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own like i didn't make hotels close i didn't make restaurants close it wasn't my fault that my job went away and because they lost their jobs through no fault of their own society has a responsibility to help take care of them whereas Mm -hmm. this isn't stated but it's implied if they had been responsible for their job loss right if they mouthed off to their supervisor or you know, did a bad job serving a meal to some cl- customer. Well, then the hell with them. Right. If they lose their jobs, it's on them. And mm-hmm. the idea that you need to say through no fault of their own, right? it, it seems to me it has enormous implications that we basically assume that the we things... We always that, assume. We always assume that the things that happen to us are things we are responsible for. And that's just not true. Or that's way too simple simple minded my view on the bigger question is that we are much 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 too wedded to the idea that that free market competition is the road to affluence and that you can you can pursue that at no cost it has massive cost right. massive social cost massive moral cost and the sort of clinton era clinton tony blair era of you know, I don't know, new liberalism, where yes. you somehow wed compassion for the, unfor- for the less fortunate with vigorous support of free market competitive activity. It struck me was a step down a really, really perilous road. And the interesting, interesting thing is that you've got incoherence on both sides of the spectrum in the following sense. Conservatives don't want you to touch the market but they do want you to tell women whether they can get abortions or not. Um, uh, women, uh, people of both genders, who, who they can be in love with and who they can marry. All that kind of regulation is okay. Just don't touch free market activities. Free market. Mm. People on the left, in contrast, think we have no right to tell people anything about how they live. But all kinds of rights to tell um, uh, enterprises how they operate. So all kinds of regulations and constraints in the market, but no constraints on individuals. And so what you've got is incoherence on both sides. Libertarians are consistent. There are very few such people because they think the you know government should keep its hands out of my private life and also out of enterprise. It's harder to find consistent people who are consistent on the left. It's really hard to find people on the left who don't, don't want to impose all kinds of regulations on, um, economic activity. And it's hard to find people on the left who do want to impose restrictions on our personal conduct. So I'm not sure there's a coherent group of people on the left. There is a coherent group on the right, but they are insignificant in the, on the political spectrum in terms of their numbers. So that's my view. My view is that the more we rely on markets, the more we are creating, Massive social and moral problems.
0: You mentioned Something called the veil of ignorance. Yes.
1: Can you explain that? Sure. That's not my time? that's not my idea That's the yes. very distinguished philosopher John Rawls in his book a uh, theory of justice Which is perhaps the great work of moral philosophy of the 20th century what he asks is what kind of a society would you create if you had no idea in advance what your position in that society would be. You know, so people of privilege like the society we live in (laughs) because they're going to end up doing just fine. But suppose you don't know whether you're going to be, you know, an upper middle class white um, intelligent person who goes to Princeton or, you know, um, uh, an African-American single parent child living in oakland who doesn't even know where princeton is you know what kind of world do you want and his argument is that when we don't know what our position in the world is going to be what we want essentially is a world in which people are equal so it's an insurance policy against disaster and we're willing to pay the price of extraordinary splendor in order to insure against disaster and and he further says in that book that if there is going to be inequality, which is inevitable, the decisions we make as a society should be decisions where the inequality ends up benefiting people at the bottom more than it benefits people at the top. Yeah. But these are imp- incredibly important ideas. And obviously they were highly controversial when he articulated them. Uh, and there, some psychologists did some studies where they asked people um, Americans, what their ideal distribution of wealth in society would look like and what they think the current distribution of wealth in American society is. Uh, and it turns out that what people, people don't want equality. They think that there should be some incentives in the system where people at the top, say the top fifth have more than a fifth of society's wealth hmm. People at the bottom fifth have less than a fifth of society's wealth, but it's pretty equal, not totally equal. And when you ask people what they think the American distribution of wealth is, they present a picture that's a picture of Sweden. Mm hmm. Though they think it's a picture of America. And when you show them what America's actual distribution of wealth is, they find it completely repugnant and moral. It's shocking. Unacceptable. It is really, really shocking. So so there's a kind of a different veil of ignorance among <laughs> Americans. And I don't this study is more than a decade old, and I have a feeling, thanks to progressive political activity. Americans are much more mindful now than they were a generation ago of just how much inequality there is in American society. But still, I suspect people would underestimate how stacked the deck is in the U.S.
0: I've been wondering, actually, if you have thought about choice feminism. Are you familiar with that term?
1: Well, not by that expression. So why don't you explain what it is and then I'll get myself into trouble. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, so choice feminism is this idea that, um, liberation for women is represented by the freedom to make any choice, um, at all. So like if a woman chooses, let's say to be like subservient to a man, oh. um, or she chooses to be like a boss bitch who like, you know, exploits the labor under her or whatever. <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe how I'm explaining this is revealing my bias, but, um. That like, as long as she has the freedom to choose, that is that represents her liberation. And I do understand like where that idea came from, but I think it's it's very much like infiltrated. I think um, like what activism looks like today, and like this idea that um, choosing, you know, having the freedom to choose any anything you want like represents liberation. I have felt like I don't agree with that definition of feminism, and that I think it's important to like critique you know, norms and individual choices and like what their implications are broad more broadly. But, um, I think that like, you know, this goes beyond just like feminism. I think we just were very, very committed to this idea of freedom of choice. And I was just curious, like mm-hmm. you're thinking about politics, you're thinking about choice. I was curious if you thought about that.
1: Particular I have, I have, I didn't know the, I didn't know that term for it. So it, yeah. it, here, here to me is the, is the analogy. It seems to me grotesque, to demand of poor countries that they solve global warming. You know, that is not their responsibility. That is not their job. That's our job. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we, in fact, should reach out and protect them from the consequences of global warming since they won't be in a position to protect. They don't have the resources to protect themselves. Because so, you
0: know, of our imperialism.
1: Correct. So you can't say, okay, listen, we're all equal and therefore we all bear an equal responsibility for the future of the planet. That's, that's just delusional. It seems to me in some ways, for people like me, privileged white men, to tell women that they don't get to choose anything they want, that there are considerations, moral considerations, social welfare considerations, decent human being considerations that preclude certain options, is a little bit like me telling Mauritania to uh, use, fu- use less in the way of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that when we, we, we think we have achieved a kind of equality, of stature, status, and opportunity by gender, then it seems to me quite appropriate to start wagging fingers at women and telling them, yeah, you're free to choose, but not all choices are acceptable. But to do it in a, at a moment in time when women are feeling like they're able to make choices for the first time in their history is, is bad form. And so I have great sympathy mm-hmm. for a choice Feminism as a, a, a sort of a way station en route to a more just society, but not as the goal, the ultimate goal. And so, does that make sense to you? So, yeah, th- yeah,
0: yeah, it does. I mean, I usually think about it in terms of like uh, it's like a band aid almost, um, or it's like I think maybe a step, stepping stone is like a better way to think about it. Nobody should be blamed for choosing to limit the their negative ex- consequences of their own oppression in whatever way they need to do it. But um, but I don't think the conversation is useful if we don't examine the, the broader implications of certain choices or why we make them.
1: No, uh, I think that's right. You know, uh, you know we told women a, a huge lie in the 1970s, which we haven't really corrected. And the lie was that you can have everything. It wasn't true then, it's not true now, and no amount of parental leave and... Childcare is going to make it possible for women to have everything. Every decision you make in life entails um, foreclosing on some other options. So take a very consequential decision like having children. If you have children, you are taking an enormous responsibility on, and you simply can't neglect that responsibility in the name of freedom of choice. It's, it's a, a burden, it's a set of obligations. Now, maybe your partner should be playing more of a role in meeting these obligations than he or she does. But the fact of the obligation is different from the how it gets apportioned. And so right. we ought to be finger-wagging at women who neglect their children in the name of choice feminism. Uh, and maybe ne- wagging our fingers even harder at their partner's because all of the, most of the burden seems to be on them. And, I, you know, it's, uh, it ought to be possible to have such conversations rather than simply uh, conceding that any choice a woman makes is legitimate. It's, it's her truth. It's her happiness. It's her goals. And women should be free to pursue whatever goals they want. No, they shouldn't, just as men shouldn't.
0: Um, right. <laughs> like like that's yeah i mean we i sometimes my friends and i laugh about the kind of like the the um aphorism of like you don't know anybody anything do whatever you want it's like well actually you do
1: <laughs> no 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 that's exactly right but but extracting that debt from people who have been oppressed seems to me to be right. very very bad form right
0: well and especially i feel like where I really want to point the finger when it comes to like choice feminism is the people who exploit this idea for money. Mm
1: -hmm. Like,
0: you know, we don't need to go too far down the feminist path because I have so many other questions for you. But, (laughs) you know, for example, like, you know, the beauty campaigns about like loving yourself or like this idea that like liberation as a woman is like purchasable. And like, as long as if you just commit even further to this beauty ideal, like you will be free to love yourself in some way it feels like a, a real um a marring of of the original idea and it's it's sent us down i think like a a, fr- a a political path that has really prized individualism and not taken in the the broader
1: ideas and, and it also has an incredible i think an incredibly destructive effect on our moral conversations Because it makes it seem as though no one has the right to criticize the decisions that anyone else makes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in charge of me, don't be judgmental. You're in charge of you, I'll try not to be judgmental. I think the point of being alive and living in social groups is to be judgmental.
0: Right. And this is what individualism like doesn't want.
1: It's exactly. And, but, but I think people on the left are much more guilty of this than people on the right. People on the right are judgmental up and down. I mean, they're judgmental about everything. Yeah. It's it's people on the left who have to bite their tongues or, you know, whisper under their breath that they really (laughs) don't approve of the decisions that their friend is making or what have you, you know, who am I to, who am I to judge? Well, everybody needs to be a judge. That's what it means to be a member of society. Um, it's just that I think we need to blunt the the sword a little bit when the judgment is being imposed on people who are experiencing real freedom of opportunity for the first time in their lives. Mm -hmm. So, um, I try very hard to keep my, to bite my tongue.
0: Right, right. I mean, it's tough though, too, because I think like my, my desires to like resist the judgment is also just an understanding of like where the fault lies. Like almost the idea that like individuals are to blame is just another version of of individualism that we're
1: trying to like de-emphasize. But it's important to make a distinction between that's bad and you're bad,
0: mm-hmm. which we don't distinguish between anymore.
1: We don't, because it goes without saying that if you do something bad, it's your fault, since we're complete. We are the masters of our lives, so there's no other explanation. So right. I think it's important to retain judgment when it comes to how people are in the world without necessarily ascribing full responsibility to those people.
0: I mean, this kind of comes back to your point about luck. Yep. You've been talking about luck a lot more. Um, Do you want to talk about like how you stumbled into thinking about luck in terms of your work on choice?
1: Sure. Well, so some years ago, uh, related to the work on choice, I, Uh, You know, I taught at Swarthmore College, a very selective institution. Uh, Virtually everybody who applied was good enough to be successful. And we took a third of the people who applied because that's all we had room for. Nowadays, Stanford, I think, takes 4% of the people who apply. Harvard takes 5%. And you know as well as I do that virtually everybody who applies to these schools is good enough to do the work.
0: Oh, a hundred percent.
1: Right. So many idiots go to the school. Yeah, I know. So maybe there are 10 people who, who would flunk out, but for the most part, everyone applying would be a, would do fine. And yet mm-hmm. you're saying no to 19 out of 20. And not only do you say no, but you brag about it. It's a badge of honor. The more people you reject, the better you are. Now, what bothered me about this was two things. One the criteria that we use are so loaded with error that the notion that we can reliably distinguish the the elect from the rejected is just fantasy. You know, you've got a whole bunch of people, all of whom are good, and we're pretending that we can make distinctions among them with a high degree of accuracy. We can't. So that was one thing that bothered me. Second Mm -hmm. thing that bothered me is I saw what it was doing to high school kids. It was turning them into complete basket cases loaded with anxiety and their parents, the same, you know, the, the scandal, the, the, you know, the college scandal of people buying their kids ways in is just a dramatic manifestation of something that had been going on for years, spending $5,000 so your kid can take SAT prep courses or hiring a tutor to help your kid write college essays, you know, that's not quite as bad as as writing a check for a half million dollars so your kid gets into USC, but it's the same kind of thing. Not everyone (laughs) is in a position to spend thousands of dollars to enhance their kid's chances of getting in. So it was incredibly destructive to kids. It was was actually hurting their educations in high school because they were so competitive and so instrumentally focused. And it was a complete um, uh, illusion that we were able to make the distinctions that we were forced to make. So I wrote an article that said college admission should be done by lottery. I love that idea. You, you know, you make distinctions good enough, not good enough. So this is my satisfying argument. You take all the people who apply to Stanford and you put them into two bins, and then the bin of people who are good, and you'll you know you'll make mistakes there too. Some of the people you think are good enough won't be, and some of the people you think aren't good enough will be, but that that's the only rough classification you're making. And then you dip into the good enough bin, and you pull out the 2,000 accepted students randomly. This is an explicit acknowledgement of what anyone inside the business has always known, which is that there is an enormous amount of luck associated with success when it comes to college admissions. The same thing is true when it comes to applying to graduate school or medical school. The same thing is true when it comes to applying for jobs at Google and Facebook. You know, they get 10 times as many qualified applicants as they can hire. They do all this song and dance to try to distinguish the unbelievably great from the merely spectacular Um, they also are under the illusion that their tools for making these distinctions are essentially error-free and it creates this kind of competitive environment that drives people nuts and it gives people the sense that they are entitled to everything they get. They've earned Mm -hmm. it. And to me, I think there are two sentences that most of us, um, believe are true when it comes to whether we live in a just society. And those two sentences, they seem like two versions of the same thing, but they're very different. One sentence is, people deserve what they get. Now, there's a lot we can do to make that true. It's not who you know, it's what you know, and so on and so on and so on. The second sentence, people get what they deserve. There's nothing we can do to make that true. Because there are always going to be more people who deserve success than there are slots in society that these people can fit into. And if we acknowledge that that's that's an aspiration that we can't achieve, that there will be deserving people who fail, it should make us more inclined to allocate privileged positions in society by lottery rather than on the basis of merit, whatever the hell that means so that's what got me interested in this Uh, and you know when i retired from swarthmore they had this lovely event to celebrate me and i gave a talk at that event and one of the points i tried to make and the most recent ted talk i gave was a scaled down version of this i sort of went through my own life i'm successful you know i'm a good teacher i've written books that people pay attention to by any standard i am a success so i went through my life And tried to point out that virtually every significant moment of decision in my life, I made either for no reason or for bad reasons. (laughs) And so, you know, uh, my success really is something that happened to me in the sense that I really didn't know where I was meant to go and what I was meant to do. And I just kept on stumbling in the right direction over and over and over again. Do I think that I deserve my success? Yes. I worked hard. I'm pretty clever. You know, I'll pat myself on the back. But do I think that my success is entirely the result of my own activities and exploits? Absolutely not. And I think that most people, if they look honestly in the mirror, will see how much of their own lives was the product of good or bad luck rather than good or bad decisions or good or good or bad actions. And if you if you see that about yourself, I think it's going to make you much more charitable when it come when you start looking at the lives of people who have not been uh, not been as successful as you. You know, they don't mm-hmm. deserve their failure. They may be just as deserving of success as you but less lucky. Right. And that changes, it seems to me, it ought to change everyone's attitude about things like redistribution of wealth. You know, you redistribute to the unlucky, you take take resources away from the lucky and give them to the unlucky rather than taking resources away from the talented and giving them to the untalented. It's a very different view of social policy. It seems to me it's much closer to the correct view and it would change the way we do politics. So that's why I got uh, uh, sort of obsessed with acknowledging the importance of luck in most life outcomes.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's something very Buddhist about it too, like relinquishing control or like the yep. the idea of control. Have you heard of this? Is just a random thought I had when you were talking, but have you heard of get what you get tattoos? No. <laughs> get what you get tattoos are um, a little tradition that happens in some tattoo parlors where instead of choosing the tattoo you want, you just put a quarter into a gumball machine and a little paper comes out and you just get whatever's on there. (laughs) 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 And it's funny because it's like, on the one hand, it's just kind of a daredevils game. yep. But on the other, I... um, I edited a piece once by a writer um, who said that it really helped her relink, like, un- or embrace the idea that she didn't control everything in her life and that, like, she could learn to like the things that she was given.
1: I thought that was kind of nice. It is. It is. Now, there's a lot of research in psychology that shows how important it is for people to feel a sense of control over their lives. So, you know, a- a being really Buddhist and life is just something that happens to you seems to be you know, pretty much of a psychological disaster for most people, you know, you want to feel like you you sort of know the rules of the game. And if you follow the rules of the game, you will achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve. So a sense of control is very important, but the mistake that psychologists have made historically is the assumption that if some of an attribute is good, more of it must be better. Mm -hmm. and adam grant and i about a decade ago i don't know if you've heard of adam grant he writes one bestseller after another he teaches at wharton we wrote Mm -hmm. we wrote an article about what we call the inverted u-shaped curve uh, where some of some um uh, experience is good but more of it isn't necessarily better some motivation is good too much motivation and you choke Mm -hmm. some choice is good too much choice, and you're paralyzed. And so, some control, some sense of control is good. Too much sense of control can be devastating, both because it gives you an inaccurate picture of the world and it, it gives you permission to beat yourself up anytime anything goes wrong. Uh, yeah. So, I think the right way to think about this is not to abandon any notion that we have control. But to modulate the notion and appreciate with some humility that we have control sort of at the margins, but a lot of what goes on in our lives is us making choices that have been given to us by the world rather than choices that we've created. So that's the. Yeah. So I don't want to make it seem as though being in control of your life is trivial, it's not trivial.
0: You know, I was thinking, I was going to ask you about that actually, because you've been, you talk a little bit about this idea of good enough and reminded me of something I went through when I was, when I was with my last boyfriend, we ended up, we were dating for years and years and I, and I, you don't look old
1: old enough to have had a last boyfriend who you've been dating for years and years. (laughs) I'm 32. Okay.
0: Um, (laughs) we were together for like six or six years or something like that. Um, but there was something about the relationship that didn't feel quite right to me, but in so many ways it was. And I think, like, in a lot of ways it was a, quote, unquote, like, good enough relationship. And I remember I even, like, I became very obsessed with this idea that it was good enough to try to kind of convince myself to not have, like, a grass is greener mentality about it. And I even went so far as to read this book about, like, it was called, like, The Case
1: for, like, Mr. Good Enough or something like that. Was it was it the book by Laurie, somebody, yes. Marry Him? Lori. Laurie-
0: Lori Gottlieb. Gottlieb, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. She interviewed me extensively in writing that book.
0: Really? Yes, she did,
1: because she felt, at, well, if you read the book, you know, she was trapped in this notion that the, the, the job was to find the perfect, and so she kept right. res, re, rejecting perfectly fine potential romantic partners.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. And I mean, I think my, my, what I was going to say though, is I do think that there's a risk to like over-investing in this like good enough idea. I mean, I remember when I told my parents, uh, finally, I just couldn't put this idea aside. Um, and maybe that means he wasn't good enough. That could be another argument, (laughs) but, um, but like, I really, if I tell you, my parents were just so surprised and confused when I ended this relationship, they were like, what do you want? Like the perfect person. And, um, I think that if I had like been fully invested in that idea, I would have stayed. And I, I was going to ask you because I, I feel like by choosing to leave and not pursue perfect, but just pursue different, I, I felt a sense of agency in my life that was very like formative. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even saying it's for sure true that I am. I mean, I think that I'm in a better relationship now, but, you know, let's say even if I wasn't, I still think I gained something from like, the sort of, I guess I would say like empowerment, even though I want to roll my eyes at that word from like choosing to, um, not just like ignore feelings I had about something not being right. So I'm just curious, like, how do you kind of balance
1: that? I think you're right about that. Um, even if it, you know, in the grand scheme of things that you'll learn about in a thousand years, it was a bad decision on your part. Um, you, you, there is this sense that you're dissatisfied. Maybe you shouldn't be but you are dissatisfied. What do you do about it? Shrug your shoulders and resign yourself or be an agent. It, it, it should be empowering to be an agent. There are several different moves you can make as an agent. One is to leave the relationship. Another is to try to reform it. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that, that's so, so troubling to me about, um, about Laurie Gottlieb's book, and m- several years later, Aziz Ansari wrote a similar kind of book called "I remember this." Called uh, "Modern Romance," and he also spent a day talking to me as he was preparing the book. Um, <laughs> the interesting sidelight is that when he got in touch with me, I had never heard of him, mm. and I mentioned this to my grandchildren, and they nearly lost all control of themselves at the prospect <laughs> that I was going to spend a day talking to this guy. Uh, <laughs> That's funny. Then I subsequently found out what a big deal he was. But the point he makes in his book, which I think is quite profound, is that we tend to think that the job when it comes to romantic partners is, is the search. Find the right person and then everything takes care of itself. I think this is exactly wrong. The job is not the search. The job is in what you do after the search is over. How do you take what looks promising and turn it into something that's fulfilling, enduring, and all you hope for in an intimate relationship? It's not like if you find the right person, it's it's. It's skiing down a slope from that point on everything's easy, you know The work has just begun, but if you put all of your effort into the search then you don't have a whole lot of effort left to put into Creating the relationship once you found a potential partner. So I think what ends up happening when we're out When we're worrying about whether this is the best partner is that we put our energy and effort into the wrong parts of the process Uh, And that was one of his points with all these potential partners available to a a highly eligible, attractive young person living in Manhattan. Why do the work? You know, if there's anything at at all dissatisfying with this person, you just swipe again and you find another person and then another and then another. (laughs) And, and, you know, the result is that he never was he was never willing to put the effort in to turning an okay relationship into a great relationship. And he saw the error in his ways after he had been treading, you know, going down this path for several years. And I think, um, so that I think is really kind of an important insight for people to have. Um, one of the virtues of arranged marriages, and they don't have many, is that it's understood that whether this is a good marriage depends on what you do with it after it's you've been thrust, you know, thrown together with someone. It's not Mm -hmm. automatically bad. It's certainly not automatically good. What do you do with it? Um, and I think we, we, we think less about that part of the process and more about the search part of the process because it's been so much, the, the set of possible partners has exploded. Thanks to modern technology.
0: Yeah. I would say there's two camps though. I think like there's a camp of people who stay in the wrong relationships and there's a camp who never stay. And I think like different people need different yep. advice. I mean, I think about it in terms of like our generational differences. Like if you say now today's everyone's focused on the search, previous generally like my parents' generation, for instance, like we're, we're not very focused on the search, kind of married the first person who was like around and the timing was right. I would say that neither is quite right. Like, I feel like uh, my friends and I talk about this, that like a lot of us feel that our parents like would have, would maybe be happier with somebody different, like who was a better match for them. So I think there's like something, maybe it's that, it's, you know, it's the
1: you, the inverted you you mentioned, right? Some choice is good. Too much choice is a disaster. (laughs) I think that's right. I think, you know, it's really horrible to see people, staying in a terrible relationship, either you know, sometimes they don't realize it's a terrible relationship and people outside of it kids see what's obvious and they and it's invisible to them. Sometimes they do see that it's a terrible relationship, but they don't have the energy, the courage, the I don't know what to end it. So it is it really is heartbreaking to see that. Um and yes, that's not the solution. The solution is not to make the best of a bad bargain no matter how bad the bargain is. Mm -hmm. It is also Mm -hmm. not to reject good bargains because there might be better ones. Right. Um, And if I had a formula, I'd be a much richer person than I am because I'd write a book (laughs) that 12 million people would instantly buy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) True, true. Um, Well, okay, before – I know we have had a lot of your time, but I did want to talk at least for a little bit about the the new research you're working on. Yes. Um, With Nathan Cheek. Yes. Um, can you tell me about like why you started or kind of what, what's different about this new research from what
1: you've previously worked on? Sure. So in the, in the choice book, I suggest with no evidence that maybe one of the reasons why people uh, are so obsessed when they have options is that they think when all you've got is Lee's and Levi's, the jeans you wear are you know they succeed in covering your ass but they they are not a statement to the world or to you about who you are because there's not enough variation in what's out there for your clothes to be a statement of identity and if it's not a statement of identity it's just you know not being arrested for being indecent in public uh Mm -hmm. not a big deal however when there are two thousand kinds of jeans to buy well now whether you like it or not The jeans you buy are a statement about who you are, because now the world is providing a rich enough set of possibilities that you get to choose the jeans that are making a statement to the world, not just about your fashion sense, but about your essence as a person. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, then even low, low stakes decisions become high stakes decisions because they're no longer just about, you know, having clothes to wear or food to eat. They're about you. So that I speculated about that. And at the time, Nate was an undergraduate uh, at Swarthmore College and he worked with me and he wanted to study it empirically. So he did his undergraduate thesis on it. And because, you know, the reality of undergraduate theses is that you have a year and if you don't get lucky, you you don't have enough time to see things through to completion unless you get lucky. And so Mm -hmm. he did wonderful experiments, but they didn't, work quite, but he didn't abandon the idea. So he went off to graduate school. And as a secondary project, he and I continued working on this. And we found ways to study it where you'd get reliable, meaningful results. And we've now got a huge number of studies that show that with the exception of extremely utilitarian kinds of decisions, like what vacuum cleaner to buy, even trivial decisions, when the set of options is small, people don't think that what they choose is a statement to the world about who they are. But when the set of options is large, people do think that what they choose is a statement to, world, to the world about who they are. Soft drinks, videos to, music videos to watch, um, movies to watch on Netflix, lots and lots of different circumstances Choices are statements about the self when the choice set is large, and they are not statements about the self when the choice set is small. And the consequence of that, we suggest, is that it makes even unimportant decisions into important ones. And so you can easily see how tortured you would be if you went shopping in a department store and you thought that every single thing you bought was telling the world something about who you are. Right. You know? all of a sudden it becomes like an insoluble problem. Who do do I want to be in the world? Mm -hmm. And why should it be that the T-shirt I choose is telling the world something essential about me? Well, maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. So, So that's what we've shown. And we've shown that when this happens, people are much more inclined to be maximizers. People are much more inclined to seek the best because the stakes are high, you know? The stakes are higher when it comes to a romantic partner than they are when it comes to buying cereal. So you want to really have high standards when you're choosing a romantic partner, maybe not so much when you're choosing cereal. Well, if choosing cereal becomes as significant as choosing a romantic partner, well, then, damn it, you want to have high stakes when it comes to that, too. Uh, High standards when it comes to that, too. So that's what the work shows. The first paper has just been accepted for publication. Oh, You know, there's a big... Lag, so it'll probably be out shortly after the new year begins. And we have two or three others that are in the pipeline. It's Nate, Nate's work. Uh, I'm riding on his coattails. Um, uh-huh. But the original idea came from the time he spent working with me when he was an undergraduate some years ago. So that's the, that work and I think it's really very significant because it helps unpack the puzzle of why people beat themselves up so much even when it comes to relatively trivial decisions.
0: I mean it's it's interesting because it's it's related to so many of the other things we talked about even just now because I think your original your original work was this idea that you know you're if you have more options you're stressed because you're thinking about how you could have made a better option right. but layering an identity it's like a it's not like a horizontal additional. It's like a, it's like, or sorry, it's not a vertical, like another thing to consider. It's like this horizontal like concern. And I think like add in social media, (laughs) which like really emphasizes like consumer identity and add in like the way we were talking about how we like mediate morality in society, which is like every choice you make says who you are. It's not just the choice in isolation. It's like all these forces capitalism, incentivizing people to have more options available. They're kind of converging on basically this issue of identity.
1: No, no, I think that's right. I think that really is right. Every consumer decision we make is a, is essentially an identity decision, whether we like it or not. Um, Yeah. And you know, people who, who think I'm, we're going overboard with this idea. They say, well, you mean to tell me that when you're voting between Trump and Clinton, and you just have two options, who you choose isn't a statement about your identity. And of course mm. it is, you know, it doesn't have, you don't have to have a million options for it to be identity relevant, what choice you make. But, but think about this, think about the, um, the, the 2020 election and the democratic primaries that led up to the election. Choosing Biden over Trump says a lot less about who you are than who you chose when there were 25 people seeking the nomination. I mean, all I can say if I know you voted for Biden is that you are one of 80 million people in this enormously varied collection of people with different values, different aspirations, different senses of justice, and so on and so on. But when you're choosing among 25 People trying to be the nominee, I can say a lot more about who you are if I know that you chose Warren rather than Biden than I ever could say if I know you chose Biden rather than Trump. So even there, it was much more identity relevant who people chose in primary season than it was who they chose in the general election. So even when a two uh, alternative choice is itself self-relevant making the same choice from 25 is even more revealing about who you are does that make sense
0: yeah 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 i mean also like the similarity of the choices right (laughs) like there's like you know if you're choosing between chocolate and vanilla those might say a lot about you but if you're choosing between vanilla and vanilla bean it's like the actual type what the context of the choice also depends well but even
1: there i think i think that you know freud famously Wrote a hundred years ago about what he called the narcissism of slight differences. Mm. You know, the left in the United States has always shot itself in the foot because different groups fight with one another, even though they're like this far apart on the spectrum. Right. And they have a common enemy that's all the way over there, but they destroy Mm -hmm. one another because this tiny difference seems so important. Well, Mm -hmm. I think there's a big story to be told about the difference between vanilla and vanilla bean. I would, (laughs) I would immediately assume a lot about what social class you came from, about how much, uh, how much money you made and all kinds of other things. If I saw you with vanilla bean in your shopping cart, rather than vanilla. So, (laughs) so, you know, don't be so quick to treat, differences as trivial because they're so small.
0: Well, wait, actually, no, I was making the opposite point because I'm saying that like, you know, in the Democratic primary, they're more similar versus like when it's Biden and Trump, like yep. you said, it's like, you know, vanilla and chocolate. It's like, you know,
1: it's there those are, are very different. They're very different and there are a million reasons for making whatever choice you make and it's yeah, much yeah, more yeah. revealing to know that you supported Warren as opposed to Biden than to know that you supported Biden rather than Trump.
0: yeah. I mean, I think it's tough though to get through. I mean, like, so many of the comments on my New York Times piece were saying, like, no, no, like, I like that I can wear any type of jeans now. I really like it. I want, I like having the options. Yep. And I, 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 part of me agrees, and maybe this just gets back to the inverted you, but like, part of me does agree. But then I think another part of me thinks that we don't know what we want sometimes in this respect. <laughs> well, that is
1: certainly true. Uh, you know, a third of the course that I used to teach on decision making was about how every decision we make is a prediction, right? We're making a prediction about how much satisfaction we'll get if we choose A rather than B. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of evidence that we are really bad at predicting. Yeah. And so it is almost certainly generally true that people don't know what they want. Yeah. But it is also generally true that people think they do know (laughs) what they want, which means that it's very hard to convince people that they're doing something crazy. So yeah, I'm sure they like being able to choose just the genes they want. The question is whether they feel that way also when it comes to choosing a toaster, toilet paper, uh, movies on Netflix, 401k investments, and the million other things where they're confronted with hundreds of choices. And my guess is that they don't feel that way about everything, but they're still forced to make these decisions
0: right or the downsides Uh, like i think i think about this with fashion all the time because yes it's very it's very satisfying to like nail it because that pressure exists but like sometimes i want to imagine a world where that pressure wasn't there so yes yes the satisfaction of nailing it is gone but then you're also gaining
1: something in that pressure being relieved and that's the way that's the life we live you know we it's hard to say I'm just not going to decide about that because the world demands that you decide about that and this and this and this and this other thing and this is a burden that I think is too much for most people to bear. Yeah. Uh, even though there will be some parts of their lives when they are thrilled and delighted that they have all these options, they don't feel that way about all parts of their lives. Right. right. That's my. Yeah. That's my sense. I assume we're about done? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you- like a final question, but if, if okay. you have a question, I'm, I'm totally game. Well, I'm just curious about your background. Where'd you go to school?
0: I went to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. Um, huh. Yeah. I didn't study what I do at all now. I, I, I made like a, speaking of like not taking enough choices into consideration, <laughs> I very much was like, just did went to the school my siblings went to because it was like cheap. I studied business, which I didn't care about. And then later regretted not taking more choices into consideration. Um, <laughs> but then I I worked in HR and like kind of tech for five years and then I transferred. I did a big career change to writing. I moved to New York and became a writer and I've been doing that for like seven years. Wow.
1: That's a big change.
0: Yeah, it was a big change.
1: Well, that's terrific. That's terrific. It, that's another lesson, of course, that it's very hard to convince young people of. And that is that life is long Mm-hmm. And even big mistakes, we almost certainly have the chance to correct.
0: Yes, true. Uh,
1: and yeah, I don't think p- your parents felt that way. And you know, I know that my parents certainly didn't feel that way. It really felt like there is one life, and some choices get made once. And damn it, you you better get them right mm-hmm. because you're not going to get a second crack. Um, but I don't think young people feel that way at all. You know, people cycle through three, four, six careers. God knows how many romantic partners. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's basically no different from ordering the wrong thing in a restaurant. You, you got to eat again tomorrow and you can correct your mistake.
0: Well, that's a nice place to end. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Barry, I really appreciate it. Dr. Schwartz. Sorry. I'm-
1: Barry, no, Barry is fine. <laughs> when people call me Dr. Schwartz, I look over my shoulder to see who they're talking
0: to. <laughs> okay, good. Um, well, I really appreciate having you on. It's you're a well of insight. I'm sure we could talk for hours longer, and it would be interesting. But I'm really grateful to have some of your time.
1: Well, and I, I really thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. You're remarkably thoughtful, and uh, and I thank you for being interested.
0: Ugh, isn't Barry just the sweetest? I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, of course, to Barry for coming on and to Soft Street for my theme music. I will talk to you all on Friday for my 15 things. And um, have a nice rest of your week. Okay, bye.